Good morning. So very good to be together on the Lord's Day. There is no greater thing than to be with God's people and to have the opportunity to worship as we have today. Thank you for all the kind remarks and encouragement that you have given me through this gospel meeting. It has been a treat to be here with you. I went back and looked and it was in October, just before my accident, that I was last here. And uh, I was living in uh, the Memphis area at that time. Of course, uh, my wife and I live about 18 minutes from here now, so we're very close, and it's nice to be near good, sound brethren. It was four years ago next month that I started a gospel meeting in Salem, Virginia, the West Side Church of Christ, where Brother Eddie Gilpin was preaching at the time. Sherry and I arrived on Saturday night, and we had just gotten to the point that our kids were grown and out of the house. She was going to start traveling with me, and it was going to be fun. This was probably the first meeting she had gone with me. And so we got there. We were expecting fellowship and time with brethren and time together. I preached on that Sunday, and then on Sunday night after services, Sherry and I went to Cracker Barrel, and I'd pulled out my phone. I took this picture of her. I thought she looked pretty that night. I had it saved on my phone. The next morning was Monday, and Eddie and his wife Jeannie invited us over to their house for lunch. They told us that they were going to take us to a little cafe that was nearby there, and so we were expecting a restaurant. But after we talked about an hour, we went outside, and they invited us to get on four-wheelers to go to the restaurant. And I thought, four-wheelers, what kind of restaurant are we going to? So anyway, we rode out on their property, and they took us to a little place under the trees, and they had this beautiful spread, and uh, Jeannie took this picture of us. And we sat and ate. It was a beautiful day. You just couldn't have asked for a better situation. When we got through eating, they said, would you like to see our farm? And we said, of course. And so we got back on the four-wheelers, and Eddie and Jeannie were on one, and Sherry and I were on the other, and we were following them. And so we got up to the top of the hill, and I stopped, and I got out my uh, phone, and I took this picture. It's kind of deceptive because it looks flat, but you're really looking down a hill here, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful scene. And Eddie said, would you like me to take a picture of you and Sherry? And I said, of course. And I handed him my phone, and he took this picture. This was just minutes before the accident. It was the last picture that was on my phone when I got into the hospital. We started down this hill, and somewhere along the way, I don't really know what happened, but we were following Eddie and Jeannie, and somewhere we hit something, and Sherry being on the back, she flew off in one direction, and I flew off in the other direction. And when I hit the ground, I broke my back, and I severed my spinal cord. I don't remember any of it. From the time that we were going down the hill, that's the last thing I know until I woke up in the hospital. When Eddie got to me, I was unconscious, and he thought I was dead. Sherry said she was at a distance, but she could hear Eddie calling my name, but I wasn't responding. She said she was praying to God that I wasn't dead or that I wasn't brain damaged. After a bit, I came to, and I still don't remember this, it's just what they told me, but 
Eddie said that I began saying, I can't feel my legs. Sherry was at a distance, and she said she could hear me groaning, and my speech was slurred, and I was hurting, but I was saying, I can't breathe. Please move me. I can't breathe. Please lift me. But Eddie wouldn't lift me because he was afraid he was going to hurt me. And so an ambulance came. It took a long time because of where they lived, and when the ambulance got there, they very quickly realized that I was broken beyond their capabilities. And so they called for a helicopter to medevac me to the hospital in Roanoke, Virginia. When I got there, they determined that I had a broken back, a cracked sternum, a cracked C1 vertebrae at the base of my skull, and I had severed my spinal cord. They operated on me and they fused five of my vertebrae together in fact, here is a, a shot of my back. You can see that the uh, back is literally, when I say it's broken, you can see the spinal cord is really broken in half. The spinal column is broken in half. When I woke up in the hospital, it was a day or two had passed. I don't know how long. I was very confused. The doctor woke me up, and I said, where am I? And he said, you're in the hospital. And I said, why? And he said, you were on a four-wheeler and you had an accident. And after I laid there and talked to him for just a minute, it occurred to me and I said, I can't move my legs. And he said, you severed or mangled your spinal cord. And I said, well, I walk again. And he said, we can't say for sure, but probably not. I thought it was a dream. You ever have a that terrible dream and you're thinking to yourself, you know, uh, I'll go back to sleep and I'll wake up and it will be over. And so I went back to sleep and I woke up and it was still real. And this happened for a while, maybe 24 hours, until I woke up and I realized that it was true. And I was absolutely devastated. After a few days in the hospital, they airlifted me in um, a small medical plane to Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia, where I spent the next two and a half months in rehab. In fact, uh, in fact, if you're interested, here's a shot of some of the hardware that's in my back. This will give you an idea what's holding me together. Uh, someone took this picture of me while I was in the hospital uh, shortly after I got there. I don't even know who took it. This was actually taken in the Shepherd Center during my rehab. You can tell by the expressions on my face. It was some very painful rehab. Shortly after I got out of the hospital, after two and a half months, was polishing the pulpit, and they asked me if I would come and speak and talk about the things that I had learned from my accident. And someone took this from behind. Uh, there were approximately 5,000 people who were gathered to hear this. They built this ramp, you can see, for me to, to get up on the stage. When I went to speak that night, I was spasming. My legs were spasming. I was shaking. I was still very emotional. I'd only been out of the hospital a week or so. It had not been very long. And I had a hard time holding it together. In fact, for a long time after the surgery... And after the accident, when I would talk about this, I would just break down, and it was so very, very hard. I've gotten to the point now where I can tell the story and, and hold it together. But it's been four years now. 
a lot of things have happened. And so what I want to do today is I want to share with you some things that I've learned based on my experiences from the last four years. Some of these I shared in the Polishing the Pulpit. Some of these are things that have evolved and changed for me in the last several years. But I want to do three things this morning. Number one, I want to make some observations and some applications about things I've learned. Number two, I want to talk about some benefits that have come from suffering. Number three, I want to talk about getting through tragedy. Number one, let's talk about some observations and applications that I have learned through this whole process. The first one being that God uses broken people. Brethren, before my accident, I was a very confident person. I felt like I could do anything, I could accomplish anything. After my accident, I was filled with doubt, very self-conscious person. In fact, I told Sherry, I'll never be offered another good preaching job again. Who's going to want a paraplegic? But you know, one thing that I have learned is this. God uses broken people. I want you to think about this. Moses, he was slow of speech. That probably means he stuttered. David, he had all kinds of family problems. Rahab was a prostitute. Naomi was a widow. She had lost two of her sons. You remember Joseph had been abused by his brothers and sold into slavery. Abraham was old. Paul was a Pharisee who killed Christians. We could go on and on. But what I can't do is become like the one-talent man who said, I'm only a one-talent man, and he became afraid and he hid his talent in the ground. A wise, older Christian brother said to me, he said, Don, no one has greater witness than the one who has been broken. He didn't mean witness in the denominational sense. He was using the word to mean you have experienced these things. Do you remember what Satan said to God in Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1 and verse 9. He said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand against him and he will surely curse you to your face. What was he saying? What he was saying is Job serves you because he's got it good. His life is good. You let crisis befall him and he will walk away. Brethren, when hard times come, and they will, it's just a matter of time, when hard times come, we've got to glorify God by our faithfulness. Here's the next thing. I have learned that grief has no timeline. Now, what do I mean by that? When I was in the hospital, I received approximately 2,800 cards I don't mean messages, I don't mean emails, I mean physical cards. My room was literally filled with cards. How do I know? My dad, my mom and dad were there with me every day, and my dad was so bored he counted every single card. And he, he said, why don't we hang them on the walls? We plastered the walls with cards until there was nowhere to hang cards. In fact, I found this picture. It gives you a little idea about what our room looked like. Someone, in fact, everyone who came into the room was impressed by that. And they said, what is this? Some, the man who worked in the mail room said in all the years he'd worked there, he'd never seen anything like it. I remember one person came in and they said, are you somebody famous? <laughs> I said, I'm a Christian. That's what brethren do. 
It impressed people. In fact, I was in the hospital with Kenny Rogers, uh, the, the singer, and uh, this was a shot that I had with uh, Kenny. Somebody said, Kenny Rogers hasn't gotten as many cards as you have. I said, Kenny Rogers is not a Christian. Now, we tried to do something about that while we were there. It didn't work out. When I got home, the cards kept coming. After we got to about 4,000, we stopped counting and the cards slowly stopped. But that's natural. But here's the thing. The grief didn't stop. In fact, when I got home, the grief got worse. I got home and I realized that I couldn't get my wheelchair up under my desk because of the, uh, the drawer that was under there, and it frustrated me. I tried to get into my filing cabinet to reach something. I couldn't reach it. I went outside, and I tried to get into my pickup truck, and I couldn't. It was too high, and I couldn't get my lame body there. Sherry and I used to walk the neighborhood together, and we couldn't do that. So many of the physical pleasures that I had had been taken away. And you know what really hurt me was the ability that I had to help other people had been taken away. Sherry and I had been married about 30 years at the time, I guess 28 years. And in all those years, she almost never had to put gas in her car. I always kept her car full of gas, and now that was challenging for me. I would carry things for other people, help people move, do repairs for them. I couldn't do that. And then there's the regiment of, I was taking about 25 pills a day, all the other physical issues that I won't even go into. But where am I going with this? The cards stopped, but life moves on. You go back to work, and I found out people really don't want to hear about your pain all the time. And so you put on a happy face, and you do the best that you can. And, and there's a loneliness that comes with all of this because nobody really understands what you're going through unless they've been there. But it made me realize that there are brethren all around me who are experiencing similar things. People reached out to me, widows and widowers, people who had lost children, people who were experiencing loss that... The, the, the grief hasn't stopped for them. They got cards and people put them in the bulletin and they mentioned them for, you know, a month or two months. But years have passed and the pain continues. Since my accident, I have continued to have brethren come to me and say, I've been suffering with this loss for years now. And I've realized that grief doesn't really have a timeline. Here's the next thing. I have learned some things about God's will. Since this accident, I've repeatedly had people say things to me like, well, Don, this happened for a reason. It was God's will or uh, the Lord's trying to accomplish something, words to that effect. Brethren, I don't believe that. If we are not careful, we get dangerously close to Calvinism that suggests that God causes everything that happens. We get to thinking that God made, that God flipped this four-wheeler on me. We've got to remember that God has given us free will. He allows us to suffer the consequences of our actions. You know, sometimes it might be that there's a drunk driver, and he will hit and kill somebody's little child, and then they go to the funeral, and some well-meaning person will say something like this, Well, God must have wanted your child in heaven. No wonder people get angry at God. That wasn't God's will. 
That was a violation of God's will. Someone sinned, and they got drunk, and they went out, and they were driving drunk, and they sinned against God, and they killed that person's child. Now, we need to be careful, and we need to realize that not everything that happens is God's will. A tremendous amount of the things that happen are violations of God's will. But listen, that doesn't mean that God can't use it. That doesn't mean when something happens that God can't providentially take advantage of that. God did, make, did not make Judas betray Jesus, but he used it. He incorporated it into his plan. After my accident, we were converting my bathroom at the house. We were making it so that I have to have a roll-in shower to hold myself up and a special shower chair. And We had contractors who were working in the bathroom, and while they were there, I started giving these men DVDs. And they would go back to their hotel room and they would watch them and they came back and they were asking me questions and we ended up having Bible studies with these four men. And before it was over, we baptized all four of these contractors. Now, in fact, the man here in the uh, orange shirt, he has continued to be faithful. He recently baptized his daughter into Christ, and he's been talking about when his daughter gets a little bit older, him going to the Memphis School of Preaching. Now, what does that mean? Providentially, the Lord can use these things. Here's something else that I've learned. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Of course, I already knew that. That's Philippians 1.21. But think about verse 23. Paul said, For I am hard-pressed between two things. The King James says that uh, he is, um, uh, forget the language of it, but the idea is I'm in a strait betwixt two things is what he says. We wouldn't say it that way, but it means I'm trapped between two things. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Now listen to this. When he says having the desire to depart, and be with Christ, he means to die. But then he says this, which is far better. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be suicidal. But do we really believe that to die is gain? Brethren, what we don't need to do is to put physical life over spiritual life. I'm afraid sometimes during the epidemic we would do that. We would put physical life over spiritual life. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's the second thing. I want to talk about some benefits of suffering. Number one, it teaches us to pray. I will admit to you, after my accident, especially soon afterwards, I really struggled with prayer. The reason I struggled is it just didn't seem like God was answering me. I was begging God to please fix me. Let me walk again. I posted on Facebook. I asked brethren all over the world. In fact, I had people all over the world literally praying for me. But the months kept rolling on. The pain was still there day in and day out. And I still couldn't walk. The emotional pain was worse than the physical pain but it caused me to dig and study prayer unlike I had ever done before. And it helped me in some ways. For one, I learned this. I want to share some of these things with you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul said this, And lest I, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, that is, Pride might get the best of me because I have so many revelations from God, it could go to my head. 
lest that should happen, he said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Who gave him this? A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And so he had some sort of ailment, I think probably a physical ailment, maybe related to his eyes. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He had some sort of ailment. He said, I prayed to the Lord three times, Lord, please take this away from me. But the answer was no. The Lord said no. It's best that it stay there. There will be benefits for you if it stay there. And I thought about that. He told Paul no. In Luke 22 and verse 41, the Bible says, He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The Bible says, Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is Jesus praying, Father, take this cup away from me. And Mark 14, 39, And again he went and he prayed, and he spake the same words. In Matthew 26, 44, And he left them, and he went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Jesus prayed this prayer, crying. You see his humanity. He's begging for deliverance. He prayed earnestly. He prayed in agony. He prayed repeatedly. And the Father said no. Why? The will of the Father needed to be done. And it made me think about this. It brought to my mind, could it be that I'm praying for relief because I want my old life back, I want the pain to stop, but in the mind of God, He can use this. There's something more important, maybe for me, maybe there's others around me. Could it be that there are souls that can be reached if I remain in this situation? I'm thinking about ending my pain, and the Lord is seeing souls and opportunities. I'm thinking about here and now in the next 20 years, and he's thinking about the everlasting and the hereafter. Maybe there's someone who's searching for the truth, and providentially, I can be the way that can lead them. Maybe there's a hard heart that can be opened by my situation. Maybe there's somebody who will be encouraged to persevere because they see me. I would recommend to you a book by Brother Dan Winkler. It's called Something Happened When I Prayed. This book's been beneficial to me. It helped me. He talks about in this book, when I pray, the Father inclines his ear toward me. From Psalm 86, the Hebrew word for inclines carries with it the idea of stretching out, bending over, or bowing toward Literally, it carries the idea that God leans toward me when I pray. When I pray, the Son of God sits at the right hand and He makes intercession for me, Hebrews 7, 25. That means He defends me. He speaks on my behalf as one who has been where I am. The Holy Spirit is at the throne of God making intercession, Romans 8, 26 and 27. And so when I pray, I started thinking and envisioning heaven. And I would think about the Father leaning toward me. I would think about the Son and the Holy Spirit actively engaging and defending me and making intercession for me. And it gave me more confidence in prayer than I had ever had. Here's another thing. 
I learned that suffering humbles us. Brethren, this entire experience has humbled me like I have never been humbled. Before this incident, I was strong physically. I worked out every day. Financially, I was well off, and I have been bombarded with bills since then. I had control of my life. At work, I was the boss. When everything is going your way, it is easy to get full of yourself. You feel like you are self-sufficient. But an accident like this makes you realize how much you depend on God. Brethren, a whole team of highly skilled doctors could do nothing for my situation, and it makes you realize how much you depend on God. This accident humbled me in ways I'd never been humble. I watched my daddy, who at the time was 77 years old, picking up my lame body and moving me around, and it's humbling. I have se I've had several occasions when I'm in my other wheelchair, my manual wheelchair. This chair will not fall over. It is well protected. But in that other chair, I will hit a rock. I'll be coming down the ramp out of my van, and I'll hit a rock, and it will cast me out on the ground. And that's happened to me several times. I remember one time I was at the Gospel Broadcasting Network. I was in the back. I parked. I'm out there by myself. I came down. I hit a rock. It threw me out in the gravel, and it was hot. I'm laying in the hot gravel. It tore my uh, skin. My leg is bleeding through my pants, and I'm out there, and I can't move. My chair is upside down. And I saw one of the, the brethren, Aaron Gallagher, who works with me. I saw him pulling in the front, and when I saw him, I started yelling and waved my arm at him, and he came back there and he picked up my body and he set me in the chair and it was so humiliating. I don't know why it was humiliating. I couldn't help it, but it's humiliating. It's, it's humbling. It's one of those things that is difficult. You know, James 4 and verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Sometimes it's good for us to be humbled. The Bible also teaches that, and experience teaches, that suffering makes us more sympathetic toward other people. You know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 says that we are to weep with those who weep. Galatians 5.22 lists as one of the fruits of the Spirit as kindness. And I will tell you, one thing that this injury has done for me is it's made me more patient with other people. It makes me perpetually want to be kind to other people. I'll give you an example. I used to get severely irritated when someone would pull out in front of me and they were driving too slowly, and I would think, why don't you speed up? Now, when someone pulls out in front of me, I get to thinking, maybe they've got a wheelchair in their van and they're trying not to sling it around. Why? Because I've been there. Since the accident, I've had so many hundreds of people reach out to me who are suffering because they've lost their spouse, death of a child, cancer, divorcee, miscarriages. Brethren, there are people who are suffering all around us, and if you're not suffering yet, it's ahead of you. Job said in Job 14:1, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. It is going to come to you sooner or later. I think about it, I lived probably the first 45 years of my life, and it was rosy. My marriage was good. My job was good. My health was good. I had not experienced any suffering. Then in 2017, my mother-in-law died of ALS. 2018, a few months later, my father-in-law died of stomach cancer. A few months after that, 
I flipped the four-wheeler. My wife was injured in the accident and has recovered mostly. She's got residual pain, and I was left a paraplegic for the rest of my life, and it started feeling like Job. And I just thought, what is going on with me? Brethren, it will test you. Here's the next thing. Suffering purifies us. What do I mean by that? When I realized how close I came to dying, it made me search my life to see if there were any shortcomings, to see if there was sin. When I realized that at any moment I could be thrust into eternity, I don't want there to be anything that could cause me to be lost. You know, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, some people might think, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. That means whether you're a Christian. That's not what that means. This was written to Christians. What does he mean when he says to Christians, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith? It means the same thing as 1 John 1 and verse 7. That is, are you walking in the light? See if you're in the faith. Are you walking in the light? Test yourselves. You know, in Psalm 119 and verse 67, David said that he went astray, now listen to this, before he was afflicted. In Psalm 119 and verse 71, four verses later, he said, it was good for me that I'd been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. What is he saying? There's benefits that have come to me because of this. Because of my affliction, I have learned your word. Because of my afflictions, I've learned your statutes. There's some blessings that come from suffering. Here's the, the last point. I want to talk about getting through tragedy. I've had people say to me, Don, I don't know how you do it. I would just curl up in my house and, and hide. How do you do it? I do it because I don't have any other choice. What do you do? You've got to press on and serve the Lord. Here's the first point. I have learned, don't live in the past. I want you to listen to this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10. The writer there, Solomon, says, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? You do not inquire wisely concerning this. Don't say, why was it so much better in the past? He says, that, that's not wise. Brethren, one of the greatest torments I have found is living in the past. When I sit and contemplate how good I used to have it before the accident, that takes me to a bad place. It can be almost anything. I can think about how much I used to like cutting the grass and then walking around the yard and that freshly cut grass and smelling it. I can think about places I used to go. In fact, when I pulled up in this parking lot and I had a flashback and I was thinking about uh, the last time I was here and then when I got to remembering that was before the accident and then I remembered unloading my boxes and how easy it was. You just start living in the past and it takes you to bad places. Sometimes people do this with regard to sin. They live in the past. They keep beating themselves up for things that they've done in the past and they can't move on. Brethren, we can't live in the past. That's the thing about the past. It's in the past and you can't change it. You've got to pick up where you are now. You know, Philippians 3.13, Paul said, This one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before, I press forward toward the prize of the high calling of our God in Christ Jesus. 
I used to think that when Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I used to think he was talking about persecuting Christians, and I'm sure that's part of it. But I think if you read the context, Paul is talking about the fact that I used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. I used to have everything going in life for me, but he said I treated those things as dung. The good things I used to have, I put those things behind me because I'm looking ahead to something that is greater now. Here's the next thing. To get through suffering, count your many blessings. We know that song, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Did you know that straight out of the, the Bible? Psalm 103 and verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of His benefits. You know what that means? Count your many blessings. Some days I find myself thinking, nobody's got it worse than I do. I mean, I get up and I'm a paraplegic. I'm hurting from the moment that I sit up. I drag my feet over the bed. I can't move or feel anything from here down. And I get to thinking, woe is me. Nobody's got it worse than I do. And then I get to thinking, I can get up and move around, and I've got a van, I've still got a job, I've got a wife who loves me and takes care of me. They told me when I was in the hospital that a lot of people's spouses, after someone goes through an accident like this, they say, I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this, and they leave. And that person now as a paraplegic or, or quadriplegic is left on their own. So I get to counting my blessings, and then I think, nobody's got it as good as I do. I go from thinking nobody's got it as bad as I do to nobody's got it as good as I do. What's the difference? Brethren, it's a matter of perspective. And this is true for you like it is for me. So much of what we do and what we feel has to do with our perspective and our mindset. You know, it makes me think about Numbers chapter 11. God has rescued the children of, e e of um, Israel from Egypt and He's giving them food from heaven. Listen to their attitudes. In Numbers 11 and verse 4, they said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing to eat except this manna. What are they talking about? They're speaking with disdain what God has blessed them with. We wish we had some of that fish we used to eat when we'd have the onions and the garlic. Now all we have is this manna that God has given us. We wish that we had the worldly things instead of what God has given us. Brethren, one thing I know is this. When I stop counting my bruises and I count my blessings, it changes my feelings. Here's another thing. I have to remember why I'm here. If you want to get through tragedy, remember why you are here. I want to read to you a quote from the book called Let This Cup Pass. It's by Sister Jane McWhorter. She wrote it after she had a very serious car accident that nearly killed her. Listen to this quote. We are here to prepare ourselves for life after death. It doesn't really matter whether we live 50 years or 100 years. Neither does it matter whether those years are carefree or filled with sorrow. The only consideration of lasting importance is where will we spend eternity? You see, I get to thinking sometimes 
I'm so unhappy because I missed my pickup truck. I loved my pickup truck. I had gone out and bought a brand new pickup truck. First time in my life, I special ordered one exactly what I wanted. I had it just a few months, and I had the accident, and I couldn't get back in it, and I had to sell it, and I got to bemoaning, oh, I love my pickup truck. Or I miss this physical pleasure that I used to engage in, and it really depresses me. And I'm afraid that we fall into this trap of thinking that's why we're here. We think, I'm here so that I can fix up my house. I'm here so that I can take vacations. I'm here so that I can retire and have that motorcycle and that boat and be happy and entertained and have the good life. And then when something happens that I don't get that, I'm miserable. I got to remember, that's not why I'm here. We talked about in Bible class, John 9, 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. That's why I'm here. How much time did Jesus spend on his yacht? How much time did Jesus spend taking camel tours with his buddies? How much time did Jesus spend fishing for that big fish to mount on his wall? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking a vacation or fishing. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of those things. I'm saying that sometimes we lose our focus of why we are here. And so when we remember that, it doesn't hurt so bad when we lose those things. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole of man. Here's the next thing. This will help you to get through with tragedy, to get through tragedy. And it's that Christianity makes all the difference. One day I was in the hospital. In fact, it was Father's Day in 2019. And my youngest daughter, Lauren, and her husband, Casey, came to visit us. And when they left that day... I was very sad. It was, it was empty. You know the feeling when your family leaves and it's empty, and particularly that way when you're in the, in the hospital. And when they left, I was sad, and my phone beeped. I have an iPhone, and the iPhone does something that's interesting because it creates what it calls a memory. It takes pictures from your uh, reel of pictures, and it adds music to them, and it creates these little videos. And that was a fairly new thing to me, but I had one pop up, and it said, you've got a memory. And so I looked at it, and I started watching it, and it had created a video of a Disney trip that my family had made some years before. And I saw a picture of me standing there, and I've got my arms around Sherry and around the kids, and it brought me very low. And I rolled over, and I was... I pulled the cover over me and I was shaking and crying and I was trying not to let Sherry see me because I was so torn up and I didn't want to make her feel worse. And I thought to myself, how am I going to go on like this? I can't live like this. And then I thought to myself, I'm a Christian. This is all temporary. I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. And then I got to thinking about all the other people who were in the hospital with me, and it made me think, that's misery. Can you imagine living your life as a paraplegic or a quadriplegic and then dying and being lost? Or being a healthy person and then dying and being lost? 
And that puts things in perspective. I've got a mission, and it made me think, I want to reach people with the gospel. And I started trying to go to people's rooms in the hospital and talk to them. Brethren, whether I'm a one-talent man, a two-talent man, a five-talent man, or a two-talent man who used to be a five-talent man, whatever it is, I want to use those things to reach souls with the gospel and to magnify the name of God. I came across this picture, and this was the one. It tore my heart out when I saw it. But I've got to remember, I'm not here for Disney World. I'm here for eternity. If I could trade all of my earthly possessions, if the doctors would say to me, if you would give us everything you have, your house, your car, your money, everything that's in the bank, and we will make your body back like it used to be, and you can walk again, I wouldn't even stop to think about it. I would do it in a skinny second. But here's one thing I would not trade. I wouldn't trade my soul. Because Matthew 16, 26, the scripture reading today, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Brethren, I wouldn't trade my soul. I'll be in this body maybe another 20 years, 30 years at the longest, but eternity is forever. I know I'm going to walk again one day in a resurrected body that will last forever. This won't be very long, but that's eternity. That's why it matters. That's why I wouldn't trade it. This morning, what's your status? If you're not a New Testament Christian, you need to be preparing for eternity. You need to be thinking about being a child of God, having your sins washed away, obeying the gospel by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized so that you can be washed in the blood of Jesus, added to His church, and be walking in the light so that you can be saved on the day of judgment. If you are a child of God, you need to be thinking about eternity. You need to be thinking about focusing on what really matters and why you're here.